Now hear God's holy word from 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to Yahweh of hosts in Shiloh. Also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of Yahweh were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although Yahweh had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because Yahweh had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of Yahweh that she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you and we give you thanks for your word. And we pray that we would humble ourselves before it today. Fill us with your spirit that we might hear it and receive it and be Uh, changed by it. Fill me with your spirit that I might communicate and articulate these things clearly. Help me forget anything that is not helpful, anything that is wrong or in error, and may everything that, that we do today honor and glorify you. Keep us from all distraction. Keep us from all error, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. People of God, I think we all have that one family member who somehow always finds a way to show out, act a fool, make a scene at a family gathering. That one family member who who looks for big events like holidays, looks for a big stage, a big big opportunity to really, really make a scene. And I've heard it said that if you don't have that person in your family, then you are that person in your family. (laughs) I don't know if that's the case. I don't know if that's the truth. But it seems like, especially around big holidays, that's, that's the case. You, you find that person always looks for an opportunity to really, to really strut their stuff. And it's like the bigger the crowd of family members is, the bigger the audience. They'll say something ridiculous. They'll pick a fight. They'll throw a fit. They'll instigate trouble. They'll ruin the fun. They'll spoil the holiday. And then somebody is left crying. In the Bible, there's a drama queen just like that named Penina. She did this very thing. And the target of all of her nonsense was a woman named Hannah. Penina specifically mocked the barren womb of Hannah. And she did it especially around festival times, where the contrast between the rejoicing of the family and the sorrow of Hannah would be most pronounced. It's like she chose festival times to make her mocking uh, most severe. But these two women weren't relatives in any kind of traditional sense, they were related only by the fact that they were both married to the same man, Elkanah. Now, right off the bat, we need to recall that in spite of some men and their, and their behavior in the Bible, God never approved of or sanctioned polygamy. When God instituted marriage, he said the two shall become one flesh. He never said the three or the four or the 12 become one flesh. He said the two. And Jesus repeats that in Mark 10. He says, this is the way it's been since the beginning of creation. The two will become one. In Leviticus 18, God's law forbids a man from marrying his wife's sister while his wife is still living. 
And, and the reason for that, God says, you can't marry your wife's sister because they will be rivals. They will be adversaries. And that word comes up again, and we'll look at it in just a minute in 1 Samuel. They'll be rivals. Now, if you apply wisdom to that and say, if you can't marry your wife's sister, and if every man is a brother to every man in Israel, and every woman is a sister to every woman in Israel, you can't, you can't have two wives. That's the bottom line. You can't have two wives because you can't marry sisters. But nevertheless, marriage is and always will be a picture of, 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 of his people. Uh, um, marriage is always a picture of the relationship between God and his people, Jesus and his church. God is not a polygamist. God doesn't have many brides. He doesn't have many wives. And the church is not to be polyandrous. The church is not to be polyamorous. The church has one God. She has one husband. She has one bridegroom. And so any other perversion of marriage, either uh, polyamory or adultery or homosexuality, is forbidden for many reasons. But at the core, it preaches a false gospel. It says something that's simply not true. Marriage is the picture of the relationship between God and his people, between Jesus and his bride, the church. And so right off the bat, in the beginning of 1 Samuel, as we uh, look at, at this uh, book that we'll spend time in over the next several months, uh, we see that we're starting off with this hitch. We're starting off with something's out of joint, something's per perverse. A man, has, a man has two wives. Yet, despite his polygamy, Elkanah still takes his family faithfully to worship Yahweh, to sacrifice to Yahweh, but he's made a horrible decision, one that he's going to have to live with. If you take a second wife, God's law also says, you owe her everything you owe your first wife, and you don't get to fix the situation by putting her away. That would be a double evil. That would be a, gr a greater evil. So you have to be faithful. You have to remain faithful to her. Now, it appears that this man had married Hannah first. She was his first wife, but, but Hannah is barren, she can't provide him with any children. Hannah's wife, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Hannah's name means favored one. And Elkanah does favor her, but he doesn't trust God to work out her barrenness. He doesn't wait on the Lord. So he marries Penina. And Penina's name means pearl, which she's anything but. She's anything but a pearl. But Penina does bear him sons and daughters. And every year when they go up to the festival at Shiloh to feast and sacrifice before the Lord, this man goes out of his way to show favor to Hannah. He gives, he gives portions of good things to eat to Penina and to her children. But the Bible says he gave double portions to his wife, Hannah. That's, way, that's his way of showing Hannah just how much he loves her. But this doesn't set well with Penina. She is jealous and she is catty and she is cruel and she's mean-spirited. She provokes Hannah severely. The Bible calls Penina Hannah's rival right there uh, in, in verse, uh, where was verse 6. Yeah, her rival. Remember, I just said it a minute ago. Back in Leviticus 18, God forbade marrying your wife's sister because they will be adversaries, because they will be rivals. And that very same word is used here. It's like God knows what he's talking about. It's like when God says not to do a thing, you don't do it because the consequence that God says will happen, happens. And that's precisely what happened here. Penina provokes Hannah severely. She is Hannah's rival. She vexes or troubles uh, uh, Hannah. And, and that, that word rival is also translated adversary. 
in various places. Just as Satan is our adversary, just as Satan is our enemy, so Penina is playing Satan to Hannah. You can just imagine, if you just, if you just let your mind wander on this for just a moment, how did Penina vex Hannah? How did she grieve her? So as Penina sets her children down to supper, as Elkanah has just given them their portions for the feast, Penina sets her children down and says, oh, I've got all these mouths to feed. Oh my, I don't know how I'm going to do it all. I'm so busy taking care of all these beautiful, wonderful children. Don't you think my children are beautiful, Hannah? Oh, you wouldn't know what that's like, though, would you? You wouldn't know what it's like to try to feed so many children. And every time we come up to Shiloh every year, it's such a hassle getting everyone ready and getting them up here for the, for the feast. You, you have it so easy, Hannah. All you have to do is take care of yourself. Uh, isn't, isn't that funny, children? Look at Hannah. She's so lonely sitting down there at the end of the table by herself. I mean, God really doesn't love her, does, does he, children? God doesn't love Hannah or else he would give her children. You see, that's the kind of, you've, you've heard that kind of language before. You've heard people do that very thing. And the needling and the sniping got so bad that every year when they went up to the tabernacle, Hannah would spend the entire holiday weeping and not fasting. Uh, I'm sorry, weeping and not feasting. Forgive me. Weeping, she was fasting. She wasn't, she wasn't feasting. So the extra portions that her husband gave to her went to waste. She didn't, she didn't eat them. She didn't enjoy them. And another quick note or two about this man, Elkanah, uh, while we're here. In the first few verses, we get a, a little piece of his genealogy, and then we're told that he's an Ephraimite. And now that would mean that he lived in the central region, the central general area of the land of Israel, where the Ephraimites lived, the tribe of Ephraim settled. But he's not a member of the tribe of Ephraim. In First Chronicles, we get a full family tree of this family, and we read that Elkanah, who's the father of Samuel, uh, spoiler alert, that's where we're going with all this. Elkanah is the father of Samuel. We get the whole family tree and we get Samuel traced back to Levi through his father, Elkanah. So, so uh, Elkanah's a Levite um, and, and he's a Levite living in the, the territory of Ephraim, which is the sort of things Levites were called to do. The tribe of Levi, remember, didn't have their own inheritance in the land. They were scattered among all the tribes to serve as priests and local teachers of the law. They would have served these various cities and villages and communities in a capacity similar to uh, local pastors. Their job was to keep the law of God before the eyes of the people. That was the principal job of the Levites. They were to keep the law of God before the people and to remind them that Yahweh was king. Yahweh was over them. Now, the book of Judges is about their failure to do that. The subtitle of the book of Judges ought to be, you know, it could be Judges colon, the failure of the Levites. Because every problem in, in Judges could be traced back to the horrible and the cruel and the awful things the Levites were doing. In fact, the last couple of stories in the book of Judges are all centered around these horrible things that God's servants, the Levites, are allowing to happen under their watch and actually doing. And so when we get to 1 Samuel, we see that Eli is the priest. Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, are uh, are, are corrupt. Eli's blind. He's both spiritually blind, he's physically blind, and he's allowing his sons to do all this awful stuff. They're carousing and stealing from worshipers and abusing worshipers at the temple, uh, at the tabernacle. And we're right in the same period of the judges. So Elkanah, while he demonstrates a measure of faithfulness, 
He exercises poor judgment in taking a second wife. He's a Levite living in a time where Levites generally are not doing their job. While we're on the subject of historical context, let's broaden out the scope just a little bit more and see where the beginning of 1 Samuel fits with the books around it. The books of Ruth, and uh, I'm sorry, Judges and Ruth and 1 Samuel, these aren't, these aren't chronological in that where Judges ends, Ruth picks up, and where Ruth ends, 1 Samuel picks up. They're more layered over each other. The stories overlap so that there are some things going on in Judges that are happening right at the beginning of 1 Samuel. There are things going on in Ruth that are happening at the same time as events in the book uh, of Judges. Um, and, and we can connect all three books, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. We could punch a hole through all three books through one single event, one series of events, and that's the birth of three extraordinary unexpected boys. Three unexpected births Two barren women, and, and this, this is amazing. This, all three happen right about, the, uh, right about the same time. And the marker for this is that around this time, there was a 40-year oppression of the Philistines against the people of God. 40 years of oppression. The first 20 years were somewhat light oppression. And in the middle of this period, Israel goes out to fight with the Philistines. They take the Ark of the Covenant as a, as a good luck charm, which they shouldn't have done. They shouldn't have dragged that out to take it into battle with them. Remember, the ark gets captured. Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas die. And then now there's 20 years of more severe Philistine oppression over Israel. The, the tabernacle is broken. The ark go this, goes this way. The, the, the altar is over here. And it doesn't get put back together again until David's day. So here we're, we've got this 40-year period of Philistine oppression. Now, back in 1 Samuel, we're at the very start of this, at the very start of this time period. We're at the beginning. Um, and so Hannah, while she's mourning her barrenness at Shiloh, way up north in Dan, an angel of Yahweh appears to the barren wife of a man named Manoah and promises this woman a child. This child is going to be a Nazarite from the womb. He will be a holy warrior for the Lord. He'll never cut his hair because his, he, he's taking this lifelong vow of warfare uh, for the Lord. He'll never drink wine because he's never going to rest. Wine is for rest. You drink wine when your work is done. Uh, and, and his work is never going to be done. So that's why he can't drink wine. He can't even eat anything from the vine. He can't eat grapes. He can't eat raisins. Not even oatmeal raisin cookies, which is no sacrifice, but he couldn't eat those either. <laughs> he, he doesn't eat anything from the vine. He doesn't drink. And then, and then the angel of the Lord, remember, even commands Mrs. Manoah that while she's carrying this baby, she's not to drink anything from the vine or to eat anything from the vine uh, or eat anything unclean. Well, of course, the baby is born and his name is Samson, right? And all the young people who went through Judges with us a few months back remember uh, his story. So Samson grows up under Philistine oppression and God protects and encourages Israel through this dark time, through Samson's continual warfare against the Pharisees. Samson just aggravates and irritates and undermines and destabilizes the Philistines all of his life. Samson is bigger than life. He's, he's this entertaining, huge 
guy. I mean, just he, he makes up riddles, his huge personality. He, he kills Philistines with unconventional weapons, uh, like the jawbone of an ass. Or he, he takes, remember when he takes the fox's tails and ties them together and puts a torch in between them. Who comes up with stuff like that? What was he doing there? But he's, he's, this, he's this guy and he burns down the crops of the Pharisees uh, with, uh, with these foxes. He's a warrior born to fight God's enemies. He's a warrior born to deliver God's people. And he's born to a barren woman right around this time. While that's going on up in Dan, what's going on down in Bethlehem? Well, there's another amazing story taking place. A Moabite widow and her Israelite mother-in-law are making their way back into the land after leaving during a time of famine. We're speaking, of course, about Ruth and Naomi. Naomi is barren. She proclaims her barrenness. She says, I can't have any more children. All of her children are dead. Naomi has no sons. Ruth is a young woman uh, with, without a husband. They both suffered loss. They have no wealth. They have no prospects for the future until God sends Ruth. She, I love, I love how the scriptures were this. She just so happens to come to the edge of Boaz's field. You know, just as luck would have it. You know, God is not, it's a little wink. You know, God is obviously directing uh, this, this whole series of events. Well, she comes into, into uh, contact with and gets to know Boaz. And Boaz is a relative of Naomi's dead husband. Boaz becomes a kinsman redeemer. He takes the role of the kinsman redeemer. He vows to take responsibility for the woman. He and Ruth are married and they have a son named Obed. Now, what happens when Obed is born? Naomi takes him and she lays him on her breast. And then all of the village women say, God has given a son to Naomi. Now what's going on there? Well, this boy is going to receive the inheritance of Naomi's husband. And here again, another barren woman has a son. And of course, Obed becomes the grandfather of David. So, so this is what's going on in the land. Right at the beginning of 1 Samuel, an angel of the Lord is appearing to Manoah and his wife and saying, you will have a son and here's what you're going to do with him. And he's going to be a mighty warrior for the Lord. And then down in Bethlehem, God is moving in the lives of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz to produce Obed, who's going to be the grandfather of the king David. And then now here at Shiloh, a barren woman, Hannah, is praying at the tabernacle. While all this is going on, by all accounts, this is a period where Israel is bottoming out. We'll come to a phrase in 1 Samuel 3 that the lamp of Yahweh is going out. That's, that's a devastating phrase. The lamp is going out. The, the Levites are failing at their job. The Philistine oppression is here and it is growing. Another way of thinking about all this is that, that the Lord left the tribe of Levi in a position to husband Israel. Levi's job, the, the tribe of Levi, was to protect and defend Israel, to protect the bride. But you remember that awful story at the end of Judges where the Levite kill, or he, he gives his wife over to uh, violent and angry and wicked men. The Levite gives his wife to angry men and then, and then he cuts her up and sends her to all the tribes of Israel. Do you remember that terrible story? That's what the Levites have done to Israel. They have abused her. They have left her uh, to fend for herself. They have left her to the idolaters to be abused and defiled. 
from the time of Gideon forward to the time of Saul, the people cry for a king. They, they, they asked Gideon to become a king and Gideon said, no, I'm not going to become a king. And then he starts acting like a king and various other judges start to act like kings. And then they cry out for Saul to give, give us a king. But what they really need is a husband. They need a mighty bridegroom. They need a defender like Samson. They need a, they need a Boaz. They need the kind of man that Samuel's going to be. They need the kind of man that David's going to be. And of course, these are all pictures of the mighty bridegroom, Jesus, who is going to save and defend and deliver his people as both a husband and a king. He's going to be both a priest and a king. But at this time in history, we don't have a mighty bridegroom. Samson's not born yet. Obed's not born yet, which means we don't have David yet. And we don't have Samuel. What we do have is barrenness. We have barrenness up in Dan. We have barrenness in Bethlehem. We have barrenness here at Shiloh and in Ephraim. We have barrenness everywhere. No sons means no future. There's no anointed one. There's no seed of the woman who will rise up to crush the serpent's head. And there's no indication here that anything is going to change soon. There's a whole lot of desperation, but not a lot of answers to what's going to happen next. Everywhere you look, Israel's in the dumps, but we don't read about any great national repentance. Where's the sackcloth and ashes? Hannah's praying for a son. Naomi and Ruth are hoping for their situation to improve. Uh, Manoah and his wife are barren, but they're not praying. They're not asking for a son. There aren't many signs that the people want something better than what they have. It's sort of like they're just hanging out and last one to leave, turn out the lights. Whatever, whatever happens, happens. Even this man, Elkanah, the Levite, seems sort of deaf to the grief of his wife. He sees her weeping while everyone else is rejoicing. In verse 8, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? That's... That's not great husbanding there, right? <laughs> I'm better than kids. Well, you know, I love you, but you're not. You're not. I, I, I want children. He doesn't really get it. He doesn't show much spiritual discernment here. And he isn't really concerned about what's going on. And yet, even though no one really appreciates how bad the situation is, God takes the initiative and he moves to save them. He sends his angel to the house of Manoah. He draws Ruth to Boaz. He moves all these pieces together. And now he draws Hannah to the tabernacle. Verse 9. So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorposts of the tabernacle of Yahweh. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to Yahweh and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Yahweh of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to Yahweh all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. Now it was the angel of the Lord who came to Samson's parents and said, here's the vow you're going to take for Samson and here's the kind of life he would lead. Hannah doesn't need to be told. She, she volunteers. She brings it up. She says, if you will give me a son, I will turn around and I will give him right back to you. And he will be a holy warrior all of his days. He will be separated. He will be consecrated. If you only give me a son, Lord, I will give him right back to you. She weeps and she pours her heart out to God. And Eli, the priest is there and he notices her 
But he acts like he's ever seen anything like this before. Verse 12. And it happened as she continued praying before Yahweh that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered and said, no, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured my soul before Yahweh. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. And she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Eli was so quick to rebuke her for drunkenness. And we might assume that he jumps to this conclusion because he saw a lot of this. He saw a lot of drunk and unruly people around the tabernacle. And he might not have seen a lot of women like this praying by herself, so distraught and so overcome with emotion, so vocal or visible or, or openly, openly distressed. So when he realizes his mistake, he quickly reverses himself and he blesses her. And when he does that, when, when Eli gives her the blessing, she stands up, her countenance changes, she goes back to her family and she eats. She hasn't been eating, but now she eats and her face is no longer sad. She's not crying anymore. She has dealt with the thing that has been grieving her. It's like she left her burden right there at the tabernacle and then turned around and goes back to her family as a cheerful woman. Her circumstances haven't changed, but her attitude has. Her outlook has changed. Her faith has changed. And she goes back and she has a really good time. She enjoys her time because she knows now God is going to answer her prayer. Now we get to see how God answers her prayer. Verse 19, then she, uh, they rose early in the morning and worshiped before Yahweh and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and Yahweh remembered her. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, because I have asked for him from Yahweh. Now the man Elkanah and all his wife and all his house went up to offer Yahweh the yearly sacrifice in his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before Yahweh and remain there forever. So Akana, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let Yahweh establish his word. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Now, when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bulls or uh, perhaps better translated, a three-year-old bull, one ephah of flour and a skin of wine and brought him to the house of Yahweh in Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to Yahweh. For this child I prayed and Yahweh has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore, I also have lent him to Yahweh. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to Yahweh. So they worshiped Yahweh there. So we read that the Lord remembered her and, and heard her prayer. 
What does that mean, that the Lord remembered her? It doesn't mean that he had a faulty memory. We read something similar back in the flood, that the Lord remembered Noah and caused the flood waters to recede, or that he remembered his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when the people cried out to him, in Egypt. The Lord remembering something means that he's going to bring up one of his promises and he's going to fulfill it. That's, that's what it means. It's not that he forgot, but he's about to change something. He's about to do something. The Lord remembers Hannah. What promise is he remembering here? He's remembering the promise that he's going to raise up a seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. That's the, that's the, the, the promise that he's answering. He remembers her and he opens her womb. She conceives and she bears a son and she names him, we say in English, Samuel. His name is Shmuel, Shmuel, uh, which means asked of God. Now the word asked all by itself is Sha'al or what we say, Saul. Saul is going to be asked for by the people, but they already have one who has been asked of God and his name is, is Samuel. Hannah doesn't make the next trip up to uh, Shiloh. In fact, she waits until Samuel is weaned, which is probably about three years old at this point. She goes up to the tabernacle with Samuel. She takes bread, she takes wine, and she takes a three-year-old bull. Now, the three-year-old bull is going to stand in for Samuel because when she sacrifices that three-year-old bull, that's what she's doing with Samuel. She is giving him up completely to the Lord. Just as that three-year-old bull is laid on the altar and offered completely to the Lord, so Samson is laid on the altar, as it were, given completely over, over to God. Both are offerings to the Lord. And as difficult as this is to imagine ever doing this, she keeps her vow. She keeps her promise and she does it happily and she does it willingly and she even rejoices in song as she gives her boy to the Lord. Now we've already heard Eli's sons mentioned at the beginning of this chapter and now another son is being added to Eli's household when she brings this boy to be raised at the tabernacle under Eli. This is an adoption of sorts. As we go through the book of 1 Samuel, there's so many relationships between fathers and sons that we'll look at. Uh, this, there's relationships between father and son play heavily. Eli's biological sons are going to bring him shame, but his adopted son Samuel is going to be faithful. Later on, Samuel has sons, and they're going to go crazy. They're going to go wild. And so, and so Samuel is going to adopt Saul of sorts. He, Saul is going to replace uh, them as, as kind of a son to Samuel. Then Saul's kingdom doesn't fall to any of his sons. Where does Saul's kingdom fall? To his son-in-law, David. In every case, the true son, the faithful son, the reliable son is not the biological son. The faithful son is one who is adopted into the family. And it points out, you know, we, we can't trust any son of, uh, son of Adam. We can't trust any biological son of Adam. We can only trust the adopted son, Jesus, who comes from the outside. And this is where salvation always comes from. Salvation is all about God initiating. Things are terrible. Things are full of death and ignorance and darkness. And we're wallowing in sin. And we can't fix it ourselves. We can't even lift a finger to fix it ourselves. So God comes from the outside and transforms the situation. He must take the initiative as he's doing now. Salvation always comes from the outside. And he is here to resurrect Israel out of this terrible mess that they're in. 
And we're just going to spend a moment on Hannah's song. I, I simply want to read it and make one or two observations. Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in Yahweh. My horn is exalted in Yahweh. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like Yahweh, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for Yahweh is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. Yahweh kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. Yahweh makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are Yahweh's and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness for by strength, no man shall prevail. The adversaries of Yahweh shall be broken in pieces. From heaven, he will thunder against them. Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and anoint the horn of his anointed. This is not a song of desperation. This is not a song of grief like her former prayer, nor is it a song of mourning. Can you imagine bringing your three-year-old to the tabernacle and dropping him off? Especially if you knew something about Hophni and Phinehas and the way that they behaved. How could you do that? But she does because she vowed to. And here she is singing a song of joy and victory. Now, some commentators stop and say, well, a woman like Hannah could not have written a song like this. I mean, come on. This had to be added later. I mean, it's talking about a king and it's talking about a Messiah. Surely this was added later. But she had three years to work on this. Three years to think about what she's going to do when she hands her boy over to the tabernacle. And I imagine that she intended to stand and sing this song of victory on a very patch of dirt where formerly she wept for a son. Now she comes back to the same spot where she wept, where her, where her tears soaked the ground and now stands there in victory in the providence and the promise fulfilled that God had given her and given her a son. Now she sings this song and thanks God for his goodness to her. She's smart and she knows what's happening when the Lord starts to open barren wombs. I don't know if she was aware of what was going on with Manoah and his wife or if she'd heard about Ruth and Naomi, but she's got to know that the Lord is beginning to act for his people the way he has historically worked. When God starts opening barren wombs, you better get ready. He's about to do something. And so she lists all these things that God has done. Now, you and I can't read this without thinking about another song that another woman sang who received good news that she was carrying a son. No doubt Mary would have grown up singing this song and knowing this song. Mary, Mary is the greater Hannah. Hannah means favored one. Mary is favored isn't she? Mary's the greater Hannah who is, is bringing salvation into the world with, with her boy, with her son. And, and so uh, the, the parallels are, are all over the place. And uh, later this afternoon, if uh, you want to take some time, compare Mary's song to Hannah's and look at all of the, look at all the connection. This song, uh, just a couple of quick observations. It begins and ends with a mention of horns, horns. An animal's horns 
are his strength and his glory, like a big rack of antlers on a, on a deer, the horns of an ox. Hannah's head has been lifted up the way a wild animal lifts up his head, lifts up his horns in victory. That's at the beginning. My horn is exalted. And, and at the end, the very last phrase is exalt the horn of his anointed. And so I think there she's referring to a specific horn, the horn of oil that was used to anoint kings. Horns are also associated with the altar because the altar, remember, had four horns. So Hannah is aware that this, this blessing is bigger than her. Uh, there's a reference to how Samuel is going to anoint kings and how, how, how uh, God is going to be exalted to the, through the sacrifices of Israel at the altar. There are all these layers here. I wonder if verse 3 is not a subtle reference or a subtle poke at Penina. Uh, she says, talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For Yahweh is the God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. Uh, it's, a, it's a warning against all those who boast over things they have no control over. Penina's boasting and aggravation and accusation was not just irritating. As we've already seen, it's, it's satanic. She played the part of the adversary in Hannah's life. I, I don't want to always make... Uh, um, don't be like David here. Don't be like Samuel here. I don't, I don't want to always do that, but here's a good one. Don't be like Penina. Do not be like her. Diagnose your daily interactions with people and ask, am I giving people joy with my words? Am I, am I building them up? Am I, am I strengthening them? Or am I just ripping them apart in subtle ways and sarcastic ways by being cynical, complaining and harping and griping like Penina? Well, Penina uh, gets this one little reference, I think. And then she's done. The best thing about Penina is we don't hear from her again, ever. That's the greatest thing. So, so just like uh, Mary's song, Hannah's song has this message of subversion. Uh, there's this upheaval of the order of society, specifically uh, uh, Israel's society. Hannah expects everything to be turned upside down and turned over. The rich and the powerful are going to be overthrown, not because they're rich and powerful, but because they're wicked and compromised. There's a need for this kind of turning things over, and that's what, that's what Hannah rejoices in. One last observation from the song from verse 1. The birth of her son causes her to rejoice in Yahweh's salvation. This happy turn of events is not only Hannah's personal deliverance, it's a means of grace to her, but this is also showing us how God is saving his people, not just her alone. This is a perspective that we need to get inside of us and meditate on. The answer to Hannah's prayer is a revelation of the way that God is saving and transforming and blessing the entire earth, the whole world. This is how his glory is known throughout creation. His help to Hannah is just a sample. It's just a taste of the way that he's going to deliver the whole world. And it's the same way for us. Every time that the Lord delivers you, every time that he answers a prayer, every time that he gives you the desires of your heart, it's a taste of his redemption that he's going to show over all creation. It's a down payment on the salvation that all of us will know and experience as his people in union with Jesus. And he still works for us the way he did for Hannah. It still works for us the way he did for Samson's parents and Ruth and Naomi. He works on our behalf and he leaves us these little clues, these little evidences to remind us this wasn't an accident. This was me working on your behalf. I was doing this for you. 
It wasn't just the stars lining up in a particular way. This was Almighty God, creator of all things, working on my behalf to raise me up from the pit and sit me in heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Remember the things that the Lord does for you, the way that Hannah sang about them and rejoice in them. Don't downplay them, but talk about them to each other and to your children. Sing the song of God's deliverance. Look what he did for us kids. Look what he did for me. He took the initiative before we even knew that we needed help and he saved us. Uh, Think just a moment uh, again about Hannah's position at the start and how she wept for a child and then uh, how she turns him over so, so willingly, so easily. We don't, we don't grieve there with Hannah at the end and giving up her son because she doesn't grieve for herself. She is blessed to have had Samuel for those three years and the Lord's gonna give her three more boys and two girls. But the principal reason we don't grieve for her in turning over her son is that she's doing essentially what all of us are called to do with our children. They're born to us and then we hand them to the Lord and we say, Lord, here they are and the Lord gives them back to us. And then, uh, and then he says, now go raise my kids. You go train my kids. You teach my children. Our kids are God's kids. Our kids are on loan from the Lord. And as, as Hannah said, I lent him back to the Lord. She understood that the Lord lent him to her in the first place. It's an important perspective. And I'll close with this. We'll wrap it up here. Uh, we ordinarily, th- ordinarily think of our kids as primarily our kids. These are, these are my kids. You ever do that with your kid? Hey, look, you're mine. You're not going to act that way. You, you belong to me. Remember who you belong to. I do it all the time. I, I have that perspective. My child would never do that. My child will never go there. We worry about our kids doing well and being faithful and eating right and staying healthy and getting a good night's rest and doing well in school. Our kids being good friends. Yes, they are my children. Yes, I must absolutely be faithful to set a godly example before them, to pray with them and for them, to teach them the doctrines of our faith. I must absolutely be faithful. But they're also God's kids. And he loves them way more than I'm capable of loving them. He cares for them and he provides for them and he protects them in ways that I am not capable of doing. I am just one significant means of grace in their lives, but my children are primarily held in his hands. They're guided by his spirit. So if they turn out well, you can't look at me and say, wow, you're such an amazing parent. Let me sit at your feet and tell me everything you did right. No, I I can tell you everything I did wrong. But if they end up being faithful, hardworking, joyful adults, it's because they're God's kids, not mine. And when they fail and when they sin, they're still God's kids. We get heartbroken heartbroken when our kids messed up. Uh, You're heartbroken? He is too. They're his kids. And because they're his, he hasn't abandoned them. He hasn't left them alone. He hasn't left them to themselves. He has initiated his work in their lives and in ours. Before we even knew that we needed saving, he is working to deliver us. Before they knew who they were, he was working to deliver and save them. So just as Hannah trusted in the promises of the Lord, came and poured out her heart and then stood and sang in victory and rejoicing, trust in the promises of God to you 
and to your children. God remembers his promises to Hannah because he remembers his promises to Israel. And God will remember his promises to you because he remembers his promises to his church. Let's rejoice in this together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the way that you are so mighty to act and the way that you are so ready and so open and willing to save and defend and deliver your people. And so uh, we, we're just amazed at the way you orchestrate things to bring about the ends that you desire. So Father, even now today, we know that you've got, uh, you've got things working. You're doing amazing and wonderful things in small ways, maybe hidden, maybe secret, but they will all bear fruit and they will all, they will all uh, prove your majesty and your glory. And so we rest in you and we hope in you and give you praise this day. In Jesus' name, amen.